remember. I remember my wedding day, the birth of my children, those kind of really seminal moments in my life. And I think it was the same for those um, who recorded Acts. They're trying to capture the early history of the church. And those things that landed in this book uh, were those who thought, yeah, no, that was really important. That, that, was, a, that was a revelationary moment. That, were, that helped us. Under, and it's so important, we've got to get that one in. And my assumption is there's loads of cool stuff going on with the early believers that didn't make it into Acts. So that stuff that did, well, that's really kind of important for us to wrestle with and understand that God chose for this to be spoken about today in Breath and Baptist, um, which is exciting. So let's, let's read the uh, first seven verses of chapter six in Acts. Um, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained about the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on the tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention and prayer to the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and the number of priests became obedient to the faith. So, um, one thing I find interesting about Acts, when you think about it, is um, it's a sense that God reveals what his purpose for the church is at the time. And a lot of that he didn't actually, you know, I often find myself, why didn't Jesus just tell them this stuff? Because it would save them a no end of headache. Uh, so if you think about, um, you know, the whole debate around circumcision and should you get circumcision, that was a big issue for them. They had to scratch their heads and so on. So Jesus gave them the overall vision, go and kind of convert all the nations and all the peoples. He didn't, he could have just so easily said, oh, and by the way, as you're doing that, you know, God's not too bothered about circumcision. Don't worry about that one. That would have saved them a load of hassle to work out, wouldn't it? Similarly about the whole pork and eating pork thing. If, it, if Jesus said, you know, this could go out to all the world, my, my good news, and, you know, God, he doesn't actually care too much about what people eat. That would have saved them trying to work all that out. And you're left wondering, well, why didn't God, Jesus, tell them these as footnotes or PSs? And I, I find myself wondering, well, maybe God just loves watching us work out, wrestle with his will. He drops these celestial clues and loves watching us work it out and grapple and wrestle with it and seek him in that. And I say that because, in a sense, with a new pastor and new minister coming, we're going to be rethinking, what is God's will for this church? That'll be a question, no doubt, he'll be asking. We'll be supporting him and the leaders in trying to answer that question. And uh, what does Acts 6 tell us? about that. How can we use Acts 6 to help us understand what is the mission and vision of church? Because when they looked back on their, their, as old men and said, yeah, no, we've got to keep this seven verses in, this was something important to them. This is what church was about. This is revelatory for them. And what can we learn from it? Um, and in short, I would say it's this, the purpose of church is mission. It's not a part of church. The purpose of church is to do mission and to bring about the restoration and the renewal of all creation under uh, the headship of Jesus. 
Um, and there are three themes that we can pick out from this. So I'm just going to pick on three themes. And what I would say is you can pick these themes out, and it's like they occurred in um, Acts 6 here, but actually you can track these themes right the way back from Jesus through Acts 6, where they came kind of crystallized through Paul and relevant for us today. Uh, so what are these themes? Uh, so this is what I'm saying is happening. Is you've got th- There's Acts uh, 6. You've got three themes running through it, and they started with Jesus went through Acts 6. Acts 6 led to uh, Stephen, who met with Saul, who converted into Paul, who took these themes and took them out into the world um, and are relevant for us to today. That makes sense? That's what we're doing. Okay, so what's the first thing? The first one is inclusion. You've got two different races here. You've got the Hebrews and you've got the Greeks, and they probably kind of speak different languages, and they probably kind of look a bit different, and they probably kind of don't think in exactly the same way. They've got different worldviews, and they dress slightly differently. And they're kind of at each other's, and they're probably stereotypes and fears and worries and suspicions growing up between these different people groups. And the early church managed to somehow manage those tensions, manage those differences, and include them into their church. And this is a theme, as you say, it picks up from Jesus, uh, the great includer who constantly sort of broke down people's understandings of who was in and who was out. And uh, we're tribal beings. We like to kind of have walls around who's in, and, and that's the same for our religious walls as well. But Jesus, from his very birth, was met by the Magi, um, written in Matthew's Gospel to the Jews. The Magi were not Jewish. They didn't look the same. They didn't sound the same. So right from his birth, you see him including people that wouldn't normally have been there. The first missionary he ever sends out uh, would have shocked people. This was a Samaritan, different tribe. Female, divorcee, none of that fits quite right, does it? Um, and it goes on and on and on. You can count countless examples. The uh, Canaanite woman, the Roman, the uh, zealot, the tax collector, the uh, bleeding woman, uh, right up to his death where he includes a criminal in the kingdom of Jesus. Uh, all of these would have broken down and challenged stereotypes of the time. And you go through Luke, uh, sorry, you go through Acts and you land in this one, and including the Hebrew and the Greek Jews. Um, and uh, you got, hang on, also they had to work out the whole circumcised lot as well. Okay, those don't have to be circumcised. I always remember working with the Rendili tribe, they talked about the Takana as the uncircumcised Takana, lower, lower tribes. We build up these stereotypes, and the church had to wrestle with these and break all those down. Okay, we're including them now, are we? Those that drink don't have pork, that eat pork. Okay, that's, that's a major barrier for me to unfold. There's a lot of baggage I've got around pig's meat. I've got to unpack all that. And who was the first person who got baptised? Uh, that would have broken it down as well, because it's an Ethiopian. Not just an Ethiopian, but an Ethiopian eunuch. Well, that doesn't fit in, because eunuchs aren't allowed into the temple. And what gender is a eunuch? Doesn't, not a woman. Is he a man? Is it a he? All oh, right, okay, I've got a whole load of religious, religious bag, baggage around this. Okay, this would have... Then the news came back to the disciples. It's, it's breaking down again, this radical inclusivity. Uh, I've got a friend who's a therapist. They reckon now there are 12 different genders. I, I struggle to understand. <laughs> I won't make that joke. Um, <laughs> I promise, Rach, I wouldn't make that joke. I struggle to understand women. I have that there. Um, so there we are. There are 12 different genders, all of whom... I don't know if that's true. All of whom radically included. Uh, Christ died for every single one of them. 
And then you see Paul picks up this message in all his uh, writings, every single letter, I think. He talks about we are one body, we're one church, one baptism. Uh, my favourite verse of, of this one is uh, in Ephesians where he says, For in Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor Jew, Greek nor Gentile. Cutting cross, gender, race, class, in ten words. And we take that for granted because we might be used to that and actually our culture is so indoctrinated now with this kind of equality uh, stuff. But at the time, um, that was radical thinking because that wasn't in the philosophy of the people at the time. My very limited understanding of Greek philosophy and stuff like that, I'm aware we've got a classicist here, so I'm feeling a bit nervous, is that Socrates and so on, they didn't get to this point. They didn't get to the point that we are all equal. Um, men were slightly superior to women. Uh, slaves were definitely inferior to other free people. Uh, and there were definitely differences in, in race as well, somewhat higher up. And, you know, the emperor was lord of all and all that sort of stuff. So when Paul went into that context, says, no, we are all exactly the same. That was A, radical, and B, it was lighting a philosophical fuse that is permeated through the centuries, saturating our culture, our thinking, our laws, right up to Declaration of Human Rights, influenced, you can trace back down to, this thinking of Paul. We're all the same. We're in Christ. We're all one. Every single one of us. There are no barriers to that. We put up these barriers, but there was this radical inclusivity about the early church that was uh, amazing. Uh, would amaze us now. So, what I'm saying is, uh, theme one from Acts 6, uh, inclusivity. Started with Jesus, went through Acts 6, into Paul, and that was the verse from Ephesians. Theme two, peace. Uh, when racial tension breaks out, often it cracks into unpeace, into conflict. Uh, and often underlying that is a, well, we'll come to that. Um, I'm going to put two statements up here that are difficult to get, I find hard to get my head around, like I haven't fully, uh, I probably never will. But these were both statements from Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. Lovely. Feels all soft and that's nice, isn't it? Nice for those peacemakers. And, I can't read this one. This is a really difficult statement, isn't it? I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against a father, a daughter against her mother. Same writer, five chapters apart. How does that fit together? That's contradictory, isn't it? We can call it a paradox, because that's how Christians get around contradiction. But uh, it's, it's, it's still difficult, for, and I, I struggle with this. I'm not saying I understand it. But I'll give you two examples that might help you understand it a little bit, or where I'm, as I try to understand it. And what are we if we're peacemakers? If we're called to be peacemakers, what does that look like? Um, so in Khartoum in the 2000s, it was a very safe place to live. Uh, you never felt like you were going to get mugged. You could walk around the streets feeling pretty safe, secure but you would never describe it as a peaceful place. There was latent tension rippling through the air. Even non-Christians would talk about it as a kind of oppressive place to live. You could feel tension. Once when we were there, it broke out again over racial lines. It was a very dangerous situation for a few days. Broke down again. Police state cracked it down. Sharia law boxed it all in. Um, while we were there, we were working and praying and advocating for a just and lasting peace. Uh, and a few months ago, you may have seen in the news that the, um, there was a peaceful process, protest. Omar Bashir, the only standing president ever to have been convicted of war crimes, uh, got disposed and is now in prison. Um, 
And so what's happened is they've made a step further towards peace. But in order to do that, they had to go into the conflict. They had to remove a president. They had to address those with power. And some of them lost their own lives. And so to be a peacemaker is not a simple, flimsy thing. It requires enormous strength and courage to go into where the conflict is. Uh, to give you another example, uh, one Easter morning, Rachel and I had some stuff planned. We really wanted to make it a fun time for our kids. We had a treasure hunt going. Uh, I was tasked with the croissants, and we had to pack all the stuff up before we got into you know, the car to go, because we're off the in-laws or whatever. So lots of pressure on Rachel and I. Uh, my task on the croissants failed completely. I burnt them. Uh, it was terrible. Um, someone asked me after the first service, how can you burn a croissant? <laughs> I don't know. Um, Anyway, I, I was in trouble. Uh, there was a lot of latent conflict between myself and Rachel. We get in the car. We're obviously not showing this conflict, but you could feel the air was rippling with tension. And we get out of the car. Some nice Christian walks past us on the way into church. Goes, ah, oh, happy Easter. You know, Jesus is risen. And at that point, down comes the mask. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. I pretend to be a great dad, great husband. What is it? Wonderful. And we're living this... Uh, feigned peace, uh, this mask of happy families, which is, at that point, completely untrue. And it looks like we were peaceful, but in reality there was latent peace. To get to peace in that situation, uh, we had to go into the conflict. Someone had to take responsibility for burning the croissant, and someone had to perhaps even admit uh, fault for that, and maybe even apologise for it, before true peace could reign in that situation. And you've got to go into the pain. And a lot of us live not in peace. Not in peace with our mother, our father, our brother, our sister, a work colleague, a son, a daughter. And that's a very painful place sometimes to go into in order to achieve peace. Uh, sometimes we witness a lack of peace around us in our workplace. Um, sometimes it's very latent. Sometimes it plays out in racial tension. Sometimes it's institutional racial issues in our workplace. We need to go into that. We need to hear it. And to be a peacemaker, we have to go into those areas of conflict, as the early church did. They saw the conflict, they went into it, and they resolved it before it got violent, as it so often does. That makes sense? So that's the second theme, peace. It's a challenge to all of us to be peacemakers. And the third, oh, there we are. Going over it again. So that's Act 6. Got some, there's peace. That started with Jesus. Went through Paul. I'd also argue Paul. Uh, the other thing I was going to so yes, yeah, so you get my point around peace. What I was going to say on this, I think Jesus uh, was constantly in conflict with the world. I think he spent the entire life in conflict with those around him. It started at his conception. There was then conflict between Mary and Joseph. Uh, from there, it went to uh, his birth, triggered a genocide. From there, when he was 12, he was at conflict with his mother over the different values. And then when you look at virtually every interaction he has with his gospel, in, he has in the gospels, there is a conflict there. There's a conflict between his attitude, his values, and those he's interacting with. And he's always dealing with conflict. There's so many different times he deals with it. Uh, from the time when uh, the, disciples, or the disciples' mother says, can, I, can my sons be at your right hand? He dealt with that really graciously. Then one time he, he put down Peter with a really startling rebuke. Another time he walked away from a, a situation. Other times he went into it. Sometimes he was really quite aggressive. Uh, you brood of vipers, woe to you. Uh, 
Um, and then on the cross, of course, he died in conflict. And he reacted to that conflict with enormous grace, saying, Father, forgive them. All these different ways that we have to deal with conflict. But he was constantly in conflict because the world around him was at odds with the attitudes of the Lord. Uh, even after his death, he goes into the conflict of doubt with Thomas. And he goes into the conflict he had with Peter, who disowned him, and he felt terrible. He had to build that up. He had to go into the pain Peter was suffering and rebuild him so he could become the man he is. Um, and Paul took this on, and I think Paul addressed any area that wasn't at one with uh, the truth of Jesus Christ. And so he ended up in a lot of conflict as a result. And we, if we are to be Christians, must be constantly in conflict with the world around us in a loving way. There are loads of ways you can deal with conflict. Um, but to be a peacemaker, that's what we need to be. Uh, it goes on until today. So that's theme two. That makes sense? Peace. Theme one, inclusion. Theme two, peace. Theme three, justice. Um, there is a justice issue here. There's a lack of bread being shared out. It won't be being shared out equally. It is inequitable. And that's a justice issue. And justice issue drives racial issues, which drives lack of peace. Um, and so they were realising, as they looked at, okay, the role of church is to bring justice, to see those injustices and respond to it and go into it. This is what church is about, is what they're working out. And actually, let's work out, oh, right, this goes right back to Moses now. Because um, when Moses met them at the burning bush, what did the Lord say to him? He said, I have seen the suffering. I've heard your prayers of an oppressed people, the Israelites, living in slavery under the Egyptians. And now am I not sending you? Go, is what he said. And Moses went and liberated these oppressed people and took them out of suffering and of slavery. Um, and Jesus himself, a former refugee, living in occupied territory, ruled by a foreign land, stood up and the first thing he said was, I have come to release the oppressed, to set prisoners free. Words charged with meaning to those that heard it um, and to proclaim the good news. And then he taught his disciples to pray right in the heart of the Lord's Prayer, these words. Give us today our daily bread. Six simple words anyone in Sunday school could understand, and yet they are words of justice when we pray them, and we pray them deeply. Why are they words of justice? Most of the time when I pray it, it's not a word of justice, because I pray, Lord, give me today my daily bread, as opposed to give us today our daily bread, where us equals the entire human race. Both the current and the future human race. So as we pray that prayer, no one is excluded from it. North Korea, South America, Syria, food bank. Central African Republic, you name it, our prayers will take us all these places. They have less bread than I have. That is a justice. Give us, give us all, give all humanity. And it doesn't even stop there. It has to include the environment and climate. Because when climate, uh, uh, when you get environmental disasters, it is always the poor that are overrepresented in those disasters. And so as it, Christians, if we care about justice, we cannot exclude our carbon footprint in our thinking. It's an unjust thing to, to do. Um, 
And so those six words give us a sense of justice. And these disciples would have prayed these words many times. They would have meditated and marinated on them. The Holy Spirit would. And so they would have thought about it so much. And then when they meet people in their community that don't have bread, quite literally don't have daily bread, then that becomes a justice issue that they have to respond to. They have no option to it because they understand these prayers. They understand God's heart is for justice. And so you see at Acts 6, revelation, understanding that, going back to Moses, through Jesus, into Paul. Paul said, you know, what earnestness, what desire to see justice at work in you. And you read the end of Romans, Paul was involved in detail with the food distribution he was trying to organise because he knew injustice there. Um, So this is the mission of church. Justice, inclusion, peace. I like to call it JIP. We have to bring, our mission is to bring JIP to the world around us. I like to call it radical inclusion. That would then be DRIP. We have to bring DRIP to work. Uh, okay, so, I'm, and this is it. Um, mission is not just an aspect of the church's role, it is its very reason for being. This is how, why God set us up. This is why we are here. In Breton Baptist, our mission is to bring JIP to our community. Um, so, the point I want to say is that all these overlap. Justice, racial tension, inclusion, peace, they're all interplay with each other. So let me give you some examples so we understand it. Uh, I'll give you some examples that aren't too close to home. Um, Darfur was a desertification war. People described it as the first ever desertification war. The deserts were expanding. Traditional grazing rights weren't working, so those who were grazing their cattle had to now come onto the crops earlier. The crops were harvested later because it took longer to fruit. And so you had this this justice issue playing, crackling, and then it broke out and played out along race lines between the Arabs and the Africans. 100,000 people killed, millions of people displaced, unprecedented human rights disaster. Justice played into race, played into lack of peace. Same in Rwanda. Uh, the most densely populated country in Africa in 1994. Um, land issues, resource issues, broke out, played out along race lines. Hutus and Tutsis. Um, where was the church? Uh, Second World War, you could argue, depression in the 1930s broke out along race lines between Jews and the Aryan race. Um, we just had a big re- recession here in the West. And the presidential candidate opened his campaign with the words that Mexicans are coming to our country and they're all rapists. Breaking out down race lines again. Once president, he then described people fleeing violence and displaced refugees as vermin. Um, Therein publicly violating their humanity. And in our country as well, it happened with, uh, you know, They're not immigrants, they're refugees. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a jungle, it was a refugee camp, and it's deplorable, one of that. And so it plays out, language is really important, that, um, yeah, we've got to see that it breaks out over race lines. And in Christ, we are all the same. And these are justice issues that we are called to. And into these situations booms out loud and clear, resolute and strong, the voice of church and the voice of Christians who are clear 
that this isn't uh, what we stand for. And is that the case? Is that where we stand now? Does our voice boom out? Do we uh, speak into these issues of race and justice? Well, I want to say yes, we do. We do. Be encouraged. There are loads of examples where the church speaks into these situations. Just two weeks ago, I was sitting opposite a vicar in a refugee's house. Uh, that vicar had used the wealth of his, pop, uh, his congregation to buy this, this refugee house a home. They'd integrated them into their community. The son was playing rugby in the community. The daughter was doing ballet in the community. They'd been included. Peace was existing. And then loads of really great examples where the church defined the culture and the voice and the chat of the day has spoken clearly into it. Can we do better? Of course we can do better. We can always be stronger. Of course we can speak more clearly, more loudly into any area where there's lack of inclusion, discrimination, rejection. Of course we can. I can. You can. We can. The national church can. The global church can. We can all do it. Which brings us on to the church. What is the role of the church? What does Acts 6 tell us about the role of church? Let me just tell you a story, because this, this story about some writings of a, a guy who I really, really admire, and have, it really helped me understand or think about what church might be, and what church could look like, and what church is. And this guy, he was kind of in a men's group, and they, were, they just actually suffered a really terrible bereavement at the time, and it's a, someone that shouldn't have died yet, and uh, they went away, they're in the kind of, they went away, they're in a developing world country, so they, they went away to, to the kind of rural retreat, and had some time alone, just really wanted to spend some time with God, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And they kind of walked around the corner, and then they suddenly, they saw all these people, and there's kind of like this disheveled mass, and uh, they didn't really have decent clothes, many didn't have shoes on them, they weren't the kind of intelligentsia, they were kind of lots of diseases, and uncured illnesses, and it was just, it was just a, a, a sorry sight of humanity, really, before them. And they're like, oh, man, I'm on a retreat with God. I can't be doing it. What's going on? I don't want to handle this. And they you know, this isn't, this isn't what I've come on retreat for. Um, and then this guy, he just sensed, that, you know, that Jesus would have had compassion on him. He just sensed Jesus' compassion on him. But he's like, I can't handle that right now, God. I need to spend time with you alone. It's not, you know, um, I can't handle that. Um, send them away, please, God. Send them away to the towns and villages. I don't want to deal with it. He was kind of wrestling with Jesus. And Jesus says to them very clearly, no, you give them something to eat. Like, something to eat? You're nuts. I've got nothing here. How can I give them something to eat? Take to me what you've got. So he took to them what they'd got. Jesus broke the bread, got them sitting down. He got the disciples to feed the bread to the 5,000. That was church. That was how Jesus discipled people into church. Um, that is the mission of church. And John, who wrote that uh, a few months later, he saw Jesus dying on the cross. And what was the final thing Jesus said to John on the cross? Take this woman into your home. This vulnerable widow, take her into your home. And the first thing the church ever did, the nascent church, was to take a vulnerable woman into the home and look after her. And so you get this template for what church is and what church can be. Now, if my brother on his deathbed said to me, Ed, will you please look after my daughter? What an honour. I would do that with every fibre of my being when I look after her. And if I do that for my father's brother, what about if my heavenly father's... Sorry. If I did that for my father's son, my earthly father's son, if he 
follow that, who's got a niece. Uh, and I felt so strongly about that. Wouldn't I do that all the more for my heavenly father's son if he asked me to do that? So shouldn't we, as a church, care for the homeless, feed the hungry? Isn't that what, what church is all about? Because if you follow and track John all the way through and read his writings and everything else, he was there in Acts 2 and Acts 4, sharing leader, share, encouraging them to share everything they had so there were no needy amongst them. To anyone, irrespective of race or creed or colour or whatever it was, anyone as they had need, we're told in Acts. That is the template for church. <coughs> so how do we land this? How do we apply this to us now? I think it's going to be, uh, I think, just as, I think over the next few months and years, we're going to be constantly working out what our mission and vision is and so on and so forth and wanting to support the leaders in that, uh, as am I. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure God will drop for us, as he did in Acts, these celestial clues for us to work out the rest of what our mission is and what Acts 6 means to that. Nationally, what's going on? I think we can say loads of cool stuff's going on nationally. 20 years ago, there weren't really many uh, debt centres. There are now hundreds run by CAF and CMA. There weren't that many food banks. There's now over a 1,000. There weren't that many street passes. I think there's now over... With Street Pass and Street Angels, over 500 towns now have those kicking around. There are, all this has come in the last 10, 20 years. There are now over 60 churches housing the homeless because of a charity started here. You can see what God is doing in his church, as he's done many times. He's realigning it away from the religious rites and rituals into, back into this sense of justice, inclusion, and peace. And uh, that is what he's doing. And no doubt he wants to do that for us as well. Sometimes when I think of church, if I miss church and I ask Rachel, how was church? I kind of might ask her with some follow-up questions after that. So how was your great? And how was the preach? And how was the worship? And how was the chat afterwards? And so what I've done with I realise it is I've boiled church down subconsciously into these three things. It's, it's a kind of, I've got it. It's what we do on a Sunday. Actually, no, what we do on a Sunday is only part of what church is. What we do on a Sunday is to strengthen us for our mission, which is church. And, but I boil it down subconsciously into all this stuff. Um, and uh, let me just draw a picture of how I also boil it down, if I can. I've got to use the right pen here. I know this is going to be difficult for you in the back. But this is, this is how I kind of see church. Without even, I don't really articulate it to myself. I kind of see it as a bunch of believers that rock up on a Sunday. And in that, if you want to, you've got various kind of, you can talk about members and you talk about the leadership team and the, the minister and so forth. But I've kind of got that in my head as, as members. And you've got the kind of whole world out here. Um, so a couple of questions. If we're to be inclusive, how can we make this boundary more porous? How can we make this an easier threshold to walk over? It's a challenge. I also, when I think of mission, I'm tempted to think of it as kind of this. I boil it down to this. Human beings out there, in need of salvation, being saved. And that is part of our mission. And don't hear me wrong, I long for salvation. I love baptisms. I left my job previously to work for Hope and Collections so I could see salvations. Last week we had someone baptised. I was overjoyed. So I, I want to see people baptised. Don't hear me wrong on this. But I put it to you, and this is my argument, that the gospel of Jesus is bigger than that. Uh, it's the whole world. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? Go out and do what? Make disciples of all the nations. The nations. The institutions, the laws, the businesses that make it up. As well as baptising people into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So let's take a look at Rwanda again, um, just to give you an example. Rwanda, before 1994, was the most Christianized country in Africa. Uh, five years after, I was living just south of Rwanda, and we were all grappling with this question of why and how did that happen. And you know, went to Rwanda a few times and stayed with them, people there and spoke to missionaries endlessly about it. And one narrative that came out quite often was Ed, or not Ed, but missionaries would kind of land on this. We did loads of great work of converting people and teaching them about personal piety. It was the most Christianized country in Africa. We did a good job of that. Uh, what we didn't do was encourage our disciples into the institutions, into the governments. In fact, some admitted they actively discouraged them into working for the government and stuff like that. So they converted loads of people, but they'd failed, arguably, to disciple the nation. They'd failed to act like the apostles in Acts 6 and see racial tension over resources and go into that and see that as their mission, to go into those tensions and bring peace, which is a very difficult thing to do. As many of you know, I mean, of course, the, the siege, the crisis go back decades, but for, therefore over decades they failed to do that. So the question is for us in Britain Baptist, where are the racial tensions? Because where the racial tensions are, that will probably highlight some sort of injustice, uh, some sort of lack of peace. And where are they in Peterborough? Where are they in Britain? Uh, where are the lack of pieces? Lack of peace. Um, Eastern Europeans and British. In Christ, there is no difference. Travelling communities and British, there is no difference. Uh, Pakistani communities and British. In Christ, there is no difference. Where are the tensions? They're probably not in the leafy suburbs. They're probably in the uh, poorer areas of Peterborough and our nation. Um, For God so loved who? Not the human race, even. For God so loved the entire world. The institutions, the laws, the policies, the bylaws, the schools, the prison, the hospitals. He loved the penguins. The whole lot is our mission field, is the gospel that we are called into. And our job as individuals, is to go out into the world as co-collaborators in God's redemptive plan to save the entire world from its sin. To make it a place where there is no drug misuse on our streets, where no one experiences violence or abuse, where justice reigns, where everyone feels included and at peace with a sense of shalom, a sense that God's kingdom I'm just going to end it there and invite everyone to pray. So I'll just, if you want to stand, the band are going to come up and, and lead us in song. And uh, do stand if you feel willing and able.